The year, 1565. The place, a tiny Mediterranean island called Malta. The military might of the Ottoman Empire, the superpower of early modern Europe, is about to fall upon the last crusading order, the Knights of St. John. It will be one of the greatest sieges in world history. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. This is episode 6, The Last Crusade. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope that your coffee was strong this morning. I also hope you're ready for one of the most epic stories I know, the Siege of Malta, 1565, an apocalyptic struggle for faith, survival, and the key to the Mediterranean. And man, I am going to tell y'all all about it. Couple things I need to say before we get started, as always. First, this is not just history, but military history. So there's some dark and bloody stuff going on. The podcast is PG-13, the language is clean, the content is not. Second, all my sources will be posted on my website. So if you want to know where I got my information, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. I'm trying to be entertaining, but all the information I'm giving you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. So let's get into it. Our story today begins during World War II. In 1940, Great Britain stood virtually alone as the sole Allied power opposing the axis of Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. This is the era of Dunkirk, of Churchill, the Battle of Britain, the Blitz, their finest hour. But the British were also at war in the Mediterranean, where the Axis threatened their control of that sea. The struggle for the Mediterranean ended up being its own great campaign of World War II, and one that, to be honest, often kind of gets left behind in the broader story of the war. Britain's most remote outpost on the borders of the Axis, at the center of the Mediterranean, was a rocky little island named Malta. Resting between Italy and North Africa, it was a constant thorn in the side of the Axis, the little nut that they could not crack. From 1940 to 1942, as Britain ran desperate supply convoys through gauntlets of fire, the German and Italian air forces and navies furiously bombarded Malta. They put all their effort into pummeling the little island into submission, but they failed. The 20th century siege of Malta became legendary, and King George VI of Great Britain even awarded the entire island the George Cross for acts of heroism or courage in the face of extreme danger. Even in the midst of history's greatest war, the valor and courage of the Maltese people stood out. Few people remembered then, or remember today. This was not the first time Malta was in the crossfire of empires, at the dead center of a clash of ideologies and a massive contest for the Mediterranean Sea. Because four centuries earlier, the people and land of Malta were the scene of one of the most terrible sieges in human history. Today's story is the Siege of Malta, 1565, the epic clash between Crusader knights and the rising power of the Ottoman Empire. 
We're going to talk about the Ottoman Empire, the Knights of St. John, and what led them into conflict in the War for the Mediterranean. We're going to go into the Ottoman military and the fortifications of a little island called Malta. And we will witness one of history's most extreme combat experiences, greatest sieges, and some of the most extraordinary acts of valor from everyone involved, Ottomans, Knights, and the Maltese population. It is the Maltese who fought to the death to defend their island, who were today's unknown soldiers. And finally, I'll tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. So, sharpen your sword, load your musket, and light your flamethrower. Because we're going on campaign. Where are we going, you ask? We're going to the Mediterranean Sea. Sunny, warm, bring some sunscreen. And it's time to meet one of my favorite historical empires, the Ottomans. Now, I've always thought the Ottomans were pretty cool. For almost 500 years, they ruled a massive and diverse empire, and they made it work for longer and better than many other empires did. So you have to kind of give them props for that. For their time, for their time, they were far more religiously and culturally tolerant than any European power. For their time, because they weren't great by modern standards, but they were still better than anyone else on that front. This is when the Inquisition was going on in Spain and, you know, rest of Europe, so it's kind of hard to be worse. The Ottomans were a Muslim dynasty that traced their origins back to a Turkish war chief named Osman. From the 1290s, the heirs of Osman had been on a seemingly unstoppable terror of conquests. By 1520, the Ottomans ruled Greece, the Balkans, Turkey, Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and Arabia, and they were threatening the borders of Central Europe and the coasts of Italy. Their imperial power and prestige derived from two sources. The conquest of Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire in 1453 allowed the sultans to claim its heritage for themselves, and they took the title of Kaisari Rum, or Caesar of Rome. So they purposely modeled themselves as the Muslim successors to the Roman Empire. But not just that. After the Ottomans captured Egypt and Arabia in 1517, they also took the title of Caliph, the successor to Muhammad as leader of the Muslim community. This made the Ottomans not just heirs to the Roman legacy, but the religious and political traditions of imperial Islam. The combination of Byzantine splendor and Islamic tradition would define the last great Muslim empire. The Ottoman Empire reached its peak under the Sultan Suleiman I, who was so powerful and so awesome that he was known to his European foes as Suleiman the Magnificent. Suleiman's reign would last from 1520 to 1566, 44 years, and during that time he turned the Ottoman Empire into the superpower of early modern Europe. In the Islamic tradition, Suleiman is better remembered as Suleiman the Lawgiver for his legal reforms and administrative genius, a comparison to the wisdom of his namesake, the biblical King Solomon of Israel. These reforms managed to rationalize and combine the secular sultan's law with the Islamic tradition of Sharia law. 
Suleiman's reign was the Ottoman Golden Age, with brilliant poetry, art, and architecture that seemed to flow from Islamic Constantinople like a flood. His court in the Topkapi Palace was the center of learning and culture in early modern Europe. But the first and foremost duty of the Ottoman Sultan was as a Ghazi, or religious warrior, dating all the way back to the days of their founder, Osman. And Suleiman was a religious warrior. He was one of the great generals of his age. It was during the brilliant reign of Suleiman that the Christian states of Europe truly came to fear the Turk, or the Great Turk, as they called the Ottoman Sultan, especially Suleiman. His might was legendary, his wealth unfathomable, his will unyielding. Europe lived in abject terror of the Turk throughout the 16th century, a big cloud that threatened Christendom from the east. It's no coincidence that many Western pop culture images of vast Eastern hordes and savage conquerors tend to have their origins in this time period. They came from that fear of the Turk. When Suleiman assumed the throne in 1520, after the death of his father, Selim the Grim, he knew that, like every newly crowned Ottoman Sultan, he would have to prove his worth by leading a successful military campaign. The empire's subjects, servants, and enemies needed to know that the ball of Ottoman conquest would keep right on a rolling. The 25-year-old Sultan's first target was the fortress city of Belgrade, which he captured from Hungary after a brief and brilliant siege in 1521. After that, though, he turned his eyes south, to a pesky island that had been giving the Ottomans no end of trouble since their very earliest days. Suleiman prepared to assault the Greek island of Rhodes, the bastion of the Knights of St. John. The Knights Hospitaller of St. John were the last of the great crusading military orders. As their name indicates, they had originally been an order of healers, founded to run hospitals and medical facilities in the Holy Land during the crusading period. Their members, recruited from all over Europe, swore vows of poverty, chastity, piety, and obedience to the Pope. Their chief mission was to care for pilgrims visiting the holy sites of Christianity, and their hospital had been dedicated to St. John the Baptist. Then someone decided that maybe taking care of pilgrims, including escorting them and fending off Muslim attacks, one thing led to another, and pretty soon the Knights of St. John were a full-fledged military order dedicated to defending the Crusader kingdoms in the Holy Land. But with the fall of the last Crusader kingdoms in Palestine in 1291, the Knights went on their own and seized the Greek island of Rhodes off the coast of Turkey and turned it into their new base. From 1310 onwards, the Knights of St. John held Rhodes as the last outpost of the Crusades. And from Rhodes, the Knights waged a relentless, lonely war against the Ottomans, continuing the Crusades long after almost everyone else in Europe had basically lost interest. Now that they were stuck on an island, they decided to reinvent themselves as pirates. The Knights' galleys wreaked havoc along the coasts of Turkey, Greece, and the Middle East, plundering Muslim ships and seizing booty and slaves. They were a constant thorn in the side of the Ottoman regime, the Pope's favorite symbol of faith and devotion, and an annoyingly self-righteous bunch of anachronistic lunatics to the rest of Christian Europe. Guys, 
Crusading is so 14th century. And they were increasingly hard for the Ottomans to ignore. The knights on roads were a major security risk, because their raids blocked the sea lanes between Constantinople and Egypt, which disrupted the grain supply to the capital. But there was also a religious issue. The knights now sat astride the main pilgrimage route to Mecca, and they routinely captured ships full of devout Muslims on their way to make the Hajj, or the pilgrimage, the most important journey of their religious lives. This was a major affront to the Ottoman sultans, because you know, now that they're the caliphs, they're the guardians of the holy cities of Islam, and it was their responsibility to protect the pilgrims, much like the Knights of St. John had protected Christian pilgrims centuries ago. Various Muslim rulers had tried to snuff the Knights on Rhodes out, but none of them had succeeded. But Suleiman the Magnificent was determined to succeed where they had failed. In 1522, the year after he took Belgrade, Suleiman launched his campaign. He marched 100,000 men down the coast of Turkey to a spot on the coast facing Rhodes, while a fleet of 400 ships roved down the shoreline to surround the island. The siege of Rhodes began on June 26, 1522. Now, the knights had been digging in and fortifying and entrenching the island for over two centuries by this point, and the fortress of Rhodes was one of the strongest and most modern fortresses of its day. Led by the Grand Master of the Order, Villiers de Lille-Adam, the defense would be stubborn. But they were facing Suleiman the Magnificent and the greatest army in the world. We'll talk more today about the Ottoman military machine. But their artillery and engineering corps in 1522 were unmatched by any European power. They were masters of siege warfare. This is kind of the age of military history when medieval practices, you know, Middle Ages, are giving way to newer tactics of gunpowder warfare, disciplined infantry, military engineering. And the Ottomans were just the best, the top at all of these. As Suleiman's infantry hacked out long trenches and worked their way towards the defenses, his sappers and engineers and miners dug long shafts beneath the ground to undermine and blow up the walls of Rhodes, and his artillery blasted away at the great fortress. The knights fought back tenaciously, though, and multiple ferocious attacks and bombardments failed to defeat them. By September, Suleiman had failed to take the fortress, and time was running out. Now this is important. Campaigning in the Mediterranean is always seasonal. When autumn approaches, the seas become too rough for galley fleets. Storms pummel the exposed soldiers. Food grows scarce. It's just not safe to launch a military campaign in the autumn in the Mediterranean. So most commanders by this point would cut their losses and withdraw. But Suleiman Magnificent's prestige was on the line and he held on to Rhodes with a bulldog grip. By December, it was the knights, starving and diseased, who had finally begun to break under the pressure. Rather than bring further suffering onto the people of Rhodes, Grandmaster Lila Dom made the decision to surrender on Christmas of 1522, after six months, 145 days of epic siege. I'll say this again, people went hard hard in the 16th century. Suleiman gave the knights honorable terms. They and any civilians who wished to accompany them were allowed to leave in peace. 
Suleiman paid homage to the valor of the knights, and looking at the elderly Grandmaster Liladam as he made his formal submission, Suleiman said, It saddens me to be compelled to cast this brave old man out of his home. Forty years later, Suleiman would come to regret the mercy he had showed in Rhodes. But for now, the island was his, and the Ottomans were one step closer to total domination of the Mediterranean Sea. The Knights of St. John were now homeless. They sent emissaries out, asking all the European powers for a new stronghold from which they could resume their war against the infidel. But most Europeans, like I said, pretty much viewed the Order of St. John as old, obsolete, an embarrassment. There was a new world being opened up by conquistadors and explorers. This is after Columbus, after all. The Protestant Reformation was tearing Christendom apart. No one was interested in these cosplayers and their long-forgotten crusade. Their time had passed. The world had moved on. But finally, the knights got an offer. Charles V, the Habsburg King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor, was the most powerful monarch in Europe, and he had an island that he wasn't using right now. In fact, no one was really using it. Charles V offered the knights the small, rocky island of Malta. The island of Malta is only 20 miles long and 12 miles wide, barren and stony, with no rivers and very little vegetation. Malta is bleached by the sun, exposed to the wind, mostly rock with little topsoil. There is one very good deep water harbor on the eastern coast, one of the greatest harbors in the Mediterranean, but Malta was so bleak that no one really used it as a major base. Around 25 to 30,000 people lived on Malta, with about 5,000 more on the nearby island of Gozo to the north. These people spoke Maltese, a unique mishmash of medieval Arabic and Italian. It was the backwater of all backwaters, and only the harbor on its east coast made the island really worth anything. The knights weren't particularly thrilled about Malta, especially when compared to the rich, fertile island of Rhodes that they had just lost, but beggars can't be choosers, and this was the best they were going to get. From 1530 onwards, the Knights of St. John made themselves at home on this barren rock. Rather than setting themselves up in the inland capital city of Medina, though, they made their base at the small fishing village of Birgu in the harbor itself. The knights, after all, were sailors, and their home was next to their ships. They immediately got to work using their limited resources and money to fortify the island. There wasn't much wood, most of it had to be shipped in from Italy since Malta is almost treeless, but there was plenty of solid rock to build their fortresses. Malta might not be the best, but it could have been a lot worse. Now, Charles V did charge the Knights of St. John rent to hang out on Malta, but he only charged them a single trained falcon, which had to be delivered annually to the Spanish Viceroy of Sicily. So that's the origin of the term Maltese falcon. So now you know. Charles did not give the Knights Malta out of the goodness of his heart. He knew that the Knights would garrison and fortify Malta, so he wouldn't have to worry about doing it. You know, get someone else to do that job for him. And it was important that they did fortify Malta, because it was fated to become the epicenter of the great struggle for the Mediterranean. If you look at a map of the Mediterranean Sea, someday, maybe today, I don't know, you might notice the sea becomes narrower in the middle, 
between North Africa and the Italian island of Sicily, which are less than a hundred miles apart. In the middle of this narrow passage, there was a tiny dot of land midway between Europe and Africa. This little dot is Malta, the key to the sea. By giving Malta to the knights, Charles V had placed them at the eye of the storm. Suleiman's conquests had brought the great conflict between Europe and the Ottoman Empire to the Mediterranean. At first, the Spanish and Italians had dominated the western side of the sea, and the Ottomans had dominated the east, with Malta marking the rough boundary between them. But in the 1520s, Suleiman brought Muslim North Africa into the empire, and his admirals led enormous fleets to scour the shores of Christian Europe. Enormous raids, huge raids, kidnapped thousands of Italian and Spanish men, women, and children to be sold in the slave markets of Algiers and Tripoli. Now, we might be in shock at how terrible this all is, and it was terrible. It was a massive human tragedy. But the Christians were doing it too with equal cruelty in Africa and America at about the same time. Slavery in the 16th century was almost universal and went both ways, and there was no real limit to who was safe from its cruelty. People went hard in all the worst ways in the 16th century. The Catholic powers fought back against the Ottomans. In the middle decades of the 1500s, the 16th century became a constant series of naval, naval campaigns and great sieges, too many to go into. The Ottomans in the east and the Spanish in the west, and in a larger sense, Islam and Christianity were locked in a contest for the Mediterranean. But Christianity was losing. Europe was divided into wars amongst its own powers, and could rarely unify long enough to fight off the growing power of the Ottoman fleet. Though the Pope made attempts to rally a great Christian coalition against the hated Turk, these attempts either came to nothing or the Ottomans destroyed them. The Mediterranean was at the mercy of Suleiman the Magnificent. And in the middle of all of this, while the big dogs fought, one little chihuahua kept biting at the Ottoman ankles. From their base on Malta, the Knights of St. John continued their own pirate raids against Ottoman shipping and trade. They only had a handful of ships, but these were some of the most heavily armed and well-piloted ships in the sea, and they were deadly opponents. So while Suleiman's navy put hundreds of ships afloat, this small handful of crusader vessels kept just poking the Ottomans in the eye time and again. With the war for the Mediterranean reaching its climax, with the Christian powers barely hanging on and the Ottoman dominion continuing to expand, Malta became the center of attention. Its strategic location and deep harbor made it a critical strong point for the Christian defense of the Western Sea or a critical launch point for an Ottoman attack on Europe. It was almost inevitable that the great struggle would eventually fall on Malta. Christian strategists expected an attack at any minute, and multiple Ottoman military leaders argued for its capture. The loudest among these was Dragut. Dragut, or Turgut, he's called by both names, known by his nickname, the Drawn Sword of Islam, was one of the greatest admirals in world history. One French writer claimed that he was a living map of the Mediterranean, who knew every cove, every harbor, every current, every fortress. He served as the Ottoman governor of Tripoli 
and he was one of Suleiman's most experienced and dedicated admirals, an expert in siege warfare and artillery tactics. He was the terror of Europe, the great pirate king, the nemesis of Christianity, and he was the chief voice for invasion of Malta and the destruction of the Knights of St. John. He told the Sultan, You will do no good until you have smoked out this nest of vipers. Dragut knew Malta better than anyone else in the empire. It had a special significance for him. In 1551, during one of his great pirate raids, he had briefly laid siege to Malta and its fortresses. He had failed to take the island, and during the raid his brother had been killed on the nearby island of Gozo. Out of fury and revenge, Draguts enslaved Gozo's entire population. But it was shortly after this raid that a soothsayer told the old admiral, allegedly, all these stories are always alleged, the soothsayer told the old admiral that he would die on Malta. Dragut's raid had also been a wake-up call for the knights. It had shown them just how vulnerable they were to a major attack. So when the new Grand Master of the Order, Jean Perissot de la Valette, was elected in 1557, he made it his first mission to fortify the island to the best of his ability. Because an invasion was coming someday, and the knights were not going to lose Malta like they had lost Rhodes. Jean Perissot de la Valette was a crusading knight in the old tradition, a living anachronism in the new age of gunpowder in the new world. He was in his 60s when he was elected Grandmaster, and had risen through the ranks for the last 40 years to become the most respected and admired knight of the order. Despite the ravages of age and the hard living of the 16th century, Lavalette was tall, strong, and commanding. He had led the Order's galleys in their raids, been wounded multiple times in combat, even captured and enslaved for a year by Dragut himself before escaping imprisonment, because people went hard in the 16th century. Chivalrous, brilliant, and unfathomably courageous, Lavalette was also ruthless and merciless against his enemies. Finally, he was a fanatically pious Catholic Christian. All this combined to make the Grand Master the ideal leader for the crisis that was to come. When Lavalette was elected, he reinvigorated the knights after years of neglect. Lavalette sent his galleys out each year to chastise the infidels in the name of the faith. The knights' ships caused enormous damage to Ottoman trade for years, but it was in 1564 that the Christian pirates captured a huge imperial galleon sailing off the coast of Greece. This galleon was a business venture in which many of Suleiman's highest ministers and courtiers had invested. But then the ships also hit the pilgrimage routes to Mecca, you know, the most sensitive part of the Sultan's pride. The knights captured not only the governor of Alexandria, but also the 107-year-old former nurse of Suleiman's favorite daughter, Miramah. These raids invoked shrieks of outrage, both from Suleiman's family and central figures of his court, and they demanded that he take Malta and destroy the den of vipers. But Suleiman was aged. He was old. He was 70 years old, and he had only grown sterner and colder in his age. He had ruled the superpower for almost half a century and had led more than a dozen great military campaigns of conquest. He was the magnificent, the lawgiver, feared and admired and respected. 
but he was beaten down by his responsibilities and disasters and disappointments. These passionate pleas for revenge against the knights might have moved the younger Suleiman, but they did not move him now. What did move him were the strategic reasons. Malta had to be taken if the Ottomans wanted to dominate the sea. The raids were not the reason for the attack, just the last straw. So throughout the winter of 1564 to 1565, Suleiman ordered the Ottoman Empire to build up an invasion force. Its target would be Malta. It was time to finally crush the den of vipers, and unlike at Rhodes in 1522, there would be no mercy. The stage was set. It was a battle between old and new, the old knightly crusading order and the new machinery of a global empire and its modern military. If we look at it this way, it was the knights who were the barbarians and the Ottomans who represented civilization. The great superpower was trying to suppress a gang of dangerous religious fanatics. But even if we put the strategic logic and military necessity of Malta aside, the coming confrontation would be imbued, overwhelmed with religion. The knights, a monastic crusading order sworn to the Pope and St. John the Baptist, had carried out their raids as a last relic of the old crusading spirit of holy war. The Ottoman Caliph, protector of the holy places, could no longer stomach the raiding of the pilgrimage drought to Mecca. Both sides saw themselves as warriors of God. Though this did not cause the conflict over Malta, that was just strategic logic. The extreme courage and zeal of both sides in the coming conflict would be driven in large part by their zealous faith and their belief in paradise. In many ways, the Siege of Malta would be the last great battle of the Crusades. So before we get into it, what is going on in 1565, the year of the Siege of Malta? When is this exactly? Well, let's see. Queen Elizabeth I rules England, and Ivan the Terrible rules Russia. St. Augustine, Florida, the first European settlement in the modern USA, is established this year by the Spanish. This is still what you might call the Renaissance era, but the late Renaissance, since Michelangelo died last year in 1564. This is definitely still the era of the Protestant Reformation and what we might call the early modern period of European history. The Ottoman force that would assault Malta was the most advanced army of that early modern period. They were just ahead of Christian Europe in almost every category of military strength. While we might have this mindset in the modern day of Middle Eastern and Islamic forces being less advanced than the West, and there's an element of truth to that today, this was not the case in 1565. The Ottomans were the superpower, and they had the superpower army. The Ottoman army's troops came from a number of sources. The largest numbers would be the Spahis, men who would be given land in exchange for military service. They usually fought as cavalry, but the 9,000 Spahis that would sail for Malta mostly fought as infantry, with bows, crossbows, or muskets. They were accompanied by 4,000 Yayalars, religious volunteers led by their imams who would fight while high on hashish, 
and 10,000 other mercenaries from various parts of the empire. But the real fighting power of the Ottoman army rested in the Sultan's household troops, the Kapikulu. This was the standing army of the empire, the troops which put the rest of Europe to shame. The most famous troops of the Kapikulu, of course, were the Janissaries. The Janissaries were slave soldiers, the children of Christian families from within the Ottoman Empire, that were conscripted from a young age to form the elite infantry corps of the Sultan. They're so interesting that I'll be releasing a short episode, a short round, after this one, just to talk about the Janissaries. Around 6,000 of the Sultan's Janissaries would join the Malta invasion force, and they would be the backbone of the Ottoman assault. Another critical element of the Kapikulu was the artillery and siege corps, which was also the most advanced in Europe. Ottoman artillery officers and siege engineers were masters of their craft, and their cannon were larger and more powerful than most of their European counterparts. The artillery craft of the Ottoman army included the use of crossfire, creeping barrages, range marking for night bombardment, and bracketing. The siege engineers were inventive and ingenious, their preferred method being to dig under the enemy's wall and blow up his fortifications from underneath. But behind all of this was the vast administrative machinery of the Ottoman state. Malta was 800 miles away from Constantinople by sea, and this would require immense logistic preparation, which, again, the Ottomans were just good at. Throughout the winter of 1564 to 1565, the Ottomans built hundreds of ships in the dockyards of Constantinople and stockpiled massive amounts of food, water, weapons, and ammunition. The air of the city rang with the sounds of military exercises and the hisses of forges and ovens turning out cannon and food. Suleiman himself personally inspected the preparations. But the Sultan would not lead this great invasion. Suleiman appointed two commanders to lead the assault on Malta. The first was Mustafa Pasha, a reliable older general who had fought as a young man in the Siege of Rhodes. Commanding the navy would be the young Admiral Piale Pasha, who had married Suleiman's beloved granddaughter. Suleiman was aware that these two men might not get along so well, talk about your generation gap, right? and he instructed Mustafa to regard Piale as a beloved son, and Piale to respect Mustafa like a beloved father. That's not going to happen, just you know, that, that, that is not going to happen. But just in case they needed advice, he would send a third commander, the best of the best. Dragut, the great pirate king, would arrive to help the other two leaders on Malta, and he would bring with him a force of North African corsairs. All three men were expected to cooperate in the Great Siege, but dividing the command like this would end up being one of Suleiman's major mistakes. Grandmaster Jean de Lavalette's spies kept him informed about the Ottoman preparations, and he was worried about Malta's readiness. The island's fortifications had been improved over the last few decades, but they were still incomplete. Besides the inland-walled city of Medina, the real defenses of Malta surrounded Grand Harbor on the eastern coast, the key to the island that was the key to the Mediterranean. Now, there are these fortresses, right? And it's going to be hard to describe these to you without a map, but I will do my best. If you need help, if you're sitting around, you can access it. Go look at Google Maps. Everything's right there. 
So imagine the eastern side of Malta, right, as a dragon's mouth with a tongue sticking out and two jagged teeth jutting out from its lower jaw. The southern half of that mouth was Grand Harbor, the best deep water harbor in the Mediterranean Sea. The two teeth protruding into Grand Harbor, the two sticking teeth, contained the villages of Birgu and Singlea. Birgu was Lavalette's headquarters. Between the two teeth was Dockyard Creek, where the knights kept their galleys and their ships. So keep that image of the dragon's mouth if you can, because I'll refer to it later. So after Dragut's raid in 1551, the knights started to fortify Birgu and Singlea, and they also realized they needed to put a fort on the dragon's tongue to block another invasion fleet from landing. This fort became known as Fort St. Elmo on the dragon's tongue. A boat ride across Grand Harbor from Birgu and Singlea, St. Elmo was substandard. It was built quickly with poor stone and in a bad position, and there wasn't much time to improve it. La Valette had very little to counter the massive and well-supplied Ottoman invasion force that he knew was coming. He only had about 500 knights and a hodgepodge of around 2,000 Spanish and Italian soldiers. The bulk of the fighting forces on Malta would be the people of Malta. And Lavalette didn't have much faith in them. You know, huh, civilians, uh. But Lavalette would be wrong about the Maltese. So would the Ottomans. They believed that since the Maltese spoke a sort of Arabic dialect, and they weren't big fans of the Knights of St. John, that they might be willing to help the invaders. But this overlooked the fact that the Maltese were fiercely, rabidly Catholic. Their slogan was that they would rather be the slaves of St. John than the companions of the Grand Turk. The Maltese would fight just as fiercely as the Knights themselves. Even still, Lavalette only had about 6,000 fighting men, half of them Maltese militia, to face the sledgehammer of around 40,000 Ottoman troops. So Lavalette began to batten down the hatches as soon as he learned that the Ottomans were building a fleet. He ordered every single knight of the order across Europe to make their way back to Malta. He supervised the stockpiling of supplies, the shoring up of parts of the wall, and the building of new temporary fortifications. And he began to alert the other Christian powers of the impending assault, like the Ottomans are coming, come help me. It was clear to all of Europe that the attack on Malta was imminent, but none of the great European rulers lifted a finger to help the knights. They were all busy fighting each other, pretty much. If anyone was going to come to the rescue of Malta, it was the local Spanish viceroy of nearby Sicily, Don Garcia de Toledo, but it would take time for him to build up a relief expedition. Don Garcia visited Malta in April 1565 to take a look at how Lavalette was preparing for the siege. He offered plenty of advice, but particularly pointed out St. Elmo, Fort St. Elmo, as both the weakest and the most important of all the defenses of the island. It was essential that the knights held St. Elmo as long as humanly possible to buy time for rescue, the rescue mission to arrive. Because once St. Elmo fell, the Ottomans would be able to bombard Birgu and Singlea from almost four sides, and then it would only be a matter of time. The forts were strengthened, grain was brought in from Sicily, the knights repaired and polished their heavy plate armor, seemingly obsolete in this age of gunpowder, but the plate armor would keep them safer than almost anyone else on either side. They trained the Maltese militia, the knights prepared as fast as they could, but they were running out of time. 
and despite all these preparations, the Ottomans took the island by surprise. On May 18, 1565, lookouts at Fort St. Elmo spotted sails cresting the horizon to the east. The alarm went out. The Maltese gathered up their children and animals and raced for shelter in the forts. By Lavalette's prearranged orders, the wells were poisoned with bitter herbs and animal corpses, and not a bit of food was left for the invader. Malta was stripped bare, and the Ottomans would have to survive on whatever they had brought. Lavalette sent a final message to Don Garcia, begging for help. Move quickly. The storm is here. The Ottoman fleet closed in on tiny Malta. Its white sails filled the horizon to the east. Forty-four years had passed since the knights had fought the Ottomans on roads, and now Jean Parasot de La Valette and Mustafa Pasha, both veterans of that great siege, both men in their seventies, were ready for the rematch. Dragut, preparing to sail and join the attack on the island, was eighty. These old men would fight just as hard as the young. The Ottoman army landed on the south side of Malta. Lavalette refused to contest the landing, knowing that he would need every man to defend the forts. Nevertheless, some of the younger knights did not have his caution, and they launched several early raids against the invaders. One knight came back with a bracelet that he had taken off a dead Spahi. The bracelet was inscribed with these words, I do not come to Malta for wealth or glory, but to save my soul. Both sides at Malta were firm in their faith, the force that would lead to the unparalleled intensity of the Great Siege. Once the Ottoman force had landed, the first great disagreement of the campaign broke out. The general, Mustafa Pasha, wanted the first objective to be the occupation of the northern island of Gozo and the inland capital city of Medina to secure his rear before turning to the strong points of Grand Harbor. But the admiral, Piale, insisted that he needed to secure a safe anchorage for his ships first, safeguard the fleet first, and this place could only be the upper side of the dragon's mouth, the Marsa Musquette. So you see, remember the dragon's mouth, the tongue? Lower side of the mouth is Grand Harbor, that's where the knight's strongholds are. The upper side is Marsa Musquette, that's where Piale wants to park his ships. And to secure the Marsa Musquette, the Ottomans had to take the fort of St. Elmo. Mustafa, against his better judgment, bowed to Piale's wishes and agreed that St. Elmo, the incomplete fortress on the dragon's tongue, would be their first target. This would be the first mistake the Ottoman commanders made. By not taking Medina early, they made trouble for themselves in the future, and by not assaulting Lavalette's main forts on Birgu and in Singlea first, they gave him time to strengthen those positions. Lavalette also sent a small force of knights and cavalry to Medina, where they could raid and harass the Ottoman siege lines from the rear. Mustafa Pasha would come to regret not taking Medina when he had the chance. Fort St. Elmo sat on the tip of the dragon's tongue. It was small and relatively weak, garrisoned by 64 knights and about 500 other soldiers, who alone would face the unparalleled might of the Ottoman war machine. No one on either side expected it to survive for very long. The knights expected it to fall in the first couple of days. The Ottomans expected the operation to take, at most, four days. 
But there was a problem. Since it was built on almost solid rock, it was immune to the Ottomans' favorite tactic of undermining the fortifications, you know, digging underneath them and blowing them up. The Sultan's troops would have to blast the fort apart with artillery and fight their way in by frontal assault. Within days of landing, Mustafa Pasha's artillerymen were hauling the big guns into position at the base of the dragon's tongue. These were big boys, massive cannon that could fire projectiles weighing 60, 80, or even 160 pounds. On May 24th, these enormous guns began to pound St. Elmo. Ottoman infantry crept forward into covered positions, and Janissary snipers were soon using their long muskets to pick off the sport's sentries. The bombardment continued day after day, a never-ending rain of stone and iron that stunned and battered the defenders of Malta. Lavalette, across the harbor in Birgu, kept a convoy of little boats running back and forth from St. Elmo. By night, when the snipers and cannoneers could not see them, reinforcements were brought in and the wounded were brought out. Remember, the fort had to hold out as long as possible to make time for the relief effort to arrive. Don Garcia had sent a message promising that he would come to the rescue by late June, but until then, Malta was on its own. On June 2nd, as the bombardment continued to reduce St. Elmo to rubble, the knights heard the Ottomans raising a cheer. Dragut, the terror of the Mediterranean, the Sultan's greatest admiral, had finally arrived with his fleet. Now, the Ottomans finally had a commander who knew what he was doing and with a reputation that gave him instant authority over Mustafa and Piale. He knew siege warfare, he knew artillery, and he knew Malta. Tragut basically told his fellow commanders that they had screwed everything up. They should have taken the northern part of the island first and left St. Elmo until last. They had gotten the order mixed up. They didn't have his experience. But now that they had begun the attack, it had to be finished quickly. Dragut declared that St. Elmo was only being kept alive by Lavalette's convoy of little boats, and he set up several new gun batteries to lay a crossfire on Grand Harbor, as well as other parts of St. Elmo. Dragut was like a maestro conducting his orchestra when it came to siege warfare. Dragut also oversaw the first big Ottoman success of the siege. After finding a weak point in the defenses, the Janissaries launched a surprise attack in the early hours of June 6th. They stormed the Ravelin quickly, butchering the defenders, then tried to exploit the success by launching an attack on the inner walls. The knights responded with musket shots and barrels of boiling oil as the Janissaries tried to scale the walls. Then the defenders unleashed a new weapon. Primitive flamethrowers, firing jets of gelatinous fluids known to the period as wildfire or Greek fire, sent hundreds of burning Janissaries screaming from the ramparts. The Janissaries had failed to breach St. Elmo's inner defenses, but they had a foothold in the walls. The garrison was cracking. St. Elmo was at the eye of the storm. The men inside were hanging onto sanity by their fingernails, and after being bombarded by the heaviest guns in the world for two weeks, and with the Ottomans inside their defenses constantly harassing them, the shell shock and pressure had to be immense. The commanders of St. Elmo sent a message to Grandmaster Lavalette. Their recommendation was to evacuate the garrison, since the fort was going to fall any day now. 
the defenders were growing downright mutinous because they all believed that St. Elmo was a death trap. And it was. Everyone knew that St. Elmo was doomed. The only question was how much time it could buy for everyone else. Lavalette declared that St. Elmo had to be held to the very end. They had to buy time for Birgu and Singlea to finish their defenses and for the relief mission to arrive. The defenders of St. Elmo would have to die at their posts. It was a hard decision to make. Lavalette was passing a death sentence on the men in the ruined, doomed, smoking citadel. But Jean de Lavalette was the kind of man who could make that call. The Grand Master asked for volunteers to go replace the garrison of St. Elmo. Despite knowing they were basically volunteering to die, almost a thousand men signed on. Then Lavalette sent a letter to those knights who wanted to evacuate. The letter said, A volunteer force has been raised. Your petition to leave is now granted. Return to the convent, where you will be in more security. I shall feel more confident when I know that the fort is held by men whom I can trust. When they received this letter, no knight of the order would dare leave his post, and they sent a reply back begging to remain and die in St. Elmo. Their grandmaster had shamed them into fighting to the end, because people went hard in the 16th century. Massive assaults came again and again throughout June. The shelling was so heavy that St. Elmo rocked like a ship in the sea. The fanaticism of the assaulting Ottoman forces, the discipline of the Janissaries, the hashish-inspired ferocity of the religious Yahyars were all matched by the equally devoted faith of the knights, the soldiers, and the Maltese militia that fought beside them. The walls of St. Elmo were wreathed in smoke and flame. Dragut coordinated the assault personally from within the trenches. The Imams blessed the Muslim attackers with the promises of paradise, as Catholic priests blessed their flock with the hope of heaven. Spanish soldier Francisco Balbi watched the battle at St. Elmo from across the bay in Birgu. Here's what he said. The darkness of the night became as bright as day due to the vast quantity of artificial fires. So bright was it indeed that we could see St. Elmo quite clearly. The gunners of St. Angelo, for their part, were able to lay and train their pieces upon the advancing Turks, who were picked out in the light of the fires. Every day, it seemed like St. Elmo would finally fall, and every day, somehow, they held on. Attackers were burned alive by fire weapons or cut apart by the swords of knights, or shot by musket-wielding Maltese soldiers. Some of the knights of St. John collapsed from the weight of their armor. The corpses of dead Ottoman soldiers at the foot of St. Elmo's walls combined their stink with the smoke, the fire, the ash, the dust, and the sand. Thousands of Ottomans died for every handful of defenders, but the Ottomans had troops to spare. On June 18th, the 80-year-old Dragut was helping to direct artillery fire in the fortress when he was struck in the head by a splinter. He was carried back to the hospital behind the Ottoman lines. But even his wounding could not save St. Elmo. By June 19th, it was reported that St. Elmo could be expected to fall at any hour. Men volunteered to cross over to the crumbling fort, and Lavalette tried to send them, but they were driven off by the intense fire from the Ottoman muskets and cannons. St. Elmo was cut off. The garrison still clung to life, 
fighting hand-to-hand and enduring bombardment from every direction. Even as late as June 22nd, three days after the commander said that they would fall at any hour, they drove off one last onslaught. St. Elmo and its defenders had defied everyone. The fort had lasted 26 days, but the exhausted defenders were reaching the limits of human endurance. There is only so hard human beings can go, even in the 16th century. It all ended on June 23rd. Piale's fleet surrounded the fort from the sea and blasted it from every corner, and the Janissaries charged in with a roar and broke into the inner ring of the fort. One by one, the defenders died. Several of the knights had been so badly wounded that they were placed in chairs in doorways and gates, fighting even though they could not stand until they were run through with spears. From Birgu across the water, Lavalette watched silently as the banner of the Sultan was raised over St. Elmo. Dragut, the terror of the Mediterranean, the Sultan's greatest admiral, lived just long enough to hear the news of St. Elmo's fall. Raising his eyes to heaven as if to thank Allah for the victory, the old pirate king rolled over and breathed his last. If the soothsayer had been real, if that story was true, she had told the truth. Dragut, at 80 years old, had died on Malta. Mustafa Pasha stood amidst the smoking ruins of St. Elmo on the afternoon of June 23rd. It was a Pyrrhic victory. St. Elmo was supposed to have fallen within a few days. Instead, it had taken a full month to defeat the tiny fortress. Mustafa looked south over Grand Harbor at Fort St. Angelo, which stood tall and untouched next to the fortified town of Birgu. Mustafa said, Allah, if so small a son has cost us so dear, what price shall we have to pay for the father? Only a few of St. Elmo's Maltese defenders had escaped by swimming across the bay, which is how we know about the fortress's final days. Mustafa decided to terrify and demoralize the rest of Malta's defenders. He had the bodies of the knights desecrated, decapitated, and then nailed to crosses in a gruesome parody of the crucifixion. They were cast into the sea to float ashore at Birgu. He also placed the heads of the fort's leaders on pikes to face Fort St. Angelo, so their dead eyes could watch their comrades fall. People went Game of Thrones level hard in the 16th century. But Lavalette would not be outdone in terrorism. After witnessing the desecration of his knights' corpses, he ordered all the Turkish prisoners taken out onto the ramparts of St. Angelo and murdered in full view of the besiegers. Later that day, his cannons fired a volley of Turkish heads into the Ottoman camp. When Piale triumphantly rowed his fleet into the upper harbor and came ashore, he was shocked at Mustafa's brutality and asked why was this cruelty necessary. But both sides were making a statement. There would be no truce, no surrender, no prisoners. This was a fight to the bitter end. The Siege of Malta, 1565 is one of the most extreme combat experiences I have ever heard of outside of the World Wars. It sounds less like anything from its era and more like Verdun or Iwo Jima or Gallipoli or Stalingrad. I am glossing over so many individual heroic actions or feats of bravery or little details about the siege, but it was truly apocalyptic. It's really hard to imagine. 
day and night bombardment until the night is red and smoky with the glow of cannon and explosions. Repeated assaults, constant sniping and raiding, the shock and fire of gunpowder warfare mixed with the brutality of medieval warfare. All the weapons of the modern world, flamethrowers, artillery, grenades, firearms, were used in the Great Siege of Malta, but when men were face to face in the breach, they fought with the weapons of the old world. Swords, pikes, spears, knives, bare fists, and rocks came into play until combat was downright Neolithic. And through it all, the Maltese civilians were the most fanatic and determined of all the combatants. Maltese men, women, and children manned the defenses, throwing down pitchers of hot oil or stabbing the Ottoman attackers with knives. Throughout the whole siege, not one, not one Maltese civilian went over to the Ottomans or deserted or abandoned their post, because they knew the fate that awaited them if the Ottomans won. What drove them all to these extremities? What made the siege of Malta such an extreme test of the human condition? Midway through the siege, Lavalette received a letter from the Pope that granted the entire island forgiveness for their sins, for their service in the war for Christ. At the same time, Ottoman soldiers were being told that Allah would grant them paradise for their service against the infidel. The Battle of Malta may not have been started for religious reasons, but it was religion that stiffened the backs and stirred the hearts of those that fought it. The Last Crusade was here. Mustafa Pasha was now determined to assault the stronghold of the Knights of St. John. The two teeth of the dragon, remember the dragon's mouth? This is the bottom jaw, the two teeth, Birgu and Singlea, defended by Fort St. Angelo and Fort St. Michael. But issues were already starting to pile up for the Ottomans. The capture of St. Elmo, which hadn't even been the main objective, remember, Piale just needed it to anchor his ships, had cost at least 6,000 of Mustafa's men, almost a fifth of his attacking force. This included half of his elite Janissaries, but it also cost him valuable time. Remember, every seaborne operation in the Mediterranean had a strict timetable due to the weather, and they were behind schedule. Mustafa was already getting impatient messages from the Sultan. Lavalette's cavalry, operating from the untaken city of Medina in his rear, continued to raid his outposts and supplies whenever they got the chance. Christian ships were raiding his supply lines back to imperial territory, and his troops were running short of food, clean water, and even ammunition. Ottoman planning had been intense, but gunpowder did not grow on trees. Birgu and Singlea were subjected day and night to the same bombardment that had ground St. Elmo into powder. The flash and roar of guns echoed across the rocky hills of Malta as the Ottomans prepared for the great showdown. Lavalette knew what was coming. He had been preparing for a month, the month that the bitter defense of St. Elmo had bought him, but he could only do so much. 1,500 men had fallen in St. Elmo, and there were no replacements for them. Even worse, there was no sign of that rescue mission. Don Garcia had given him the date of June 20th, but that day had come and gone. 
the Knights and the Maltese were beginning to understand that no one was coming to save them. They would have to save themselves. Mustafa's plan to tackle Birgu and Singlea was soon apparent. The defender's guns on the teeth of the dragon blocked ships from rowing into Grand Harbor, but there were ways around that. Mustafa ordered the Ottoman ships dragged a thousand yards on greased logs across the base of the dragon's tongue to be launched into the waters at the head of Grand Harbor. This idea had probably been Dragut's idea, because he'd used a similar tactic at Jerba in 1560. So when the Ottomans launched their great assault, it would be an amphibious assault from both land and sea, and Lavalette did not have enough troops to hold the line strongly everywhere. To counter the expected amphibious assault, Lavalette had built barricades in the waters surrounding his fortress, but then the Ottomans sent sapper teams to try and destroy these barricades. Lavalette sent out the Maltese. The Maltese were expert swimmers, and they swam out with nearly naked, with swords in their teeth, to fight the Ottoman engineers in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Yeah, so yeah, now we've got swimming battles. Soon the seas of Grand Harbor ran red with blood, and the Maltese prevailed, because the Maltese went hard in the 16th century. Mustafa Pasha's first target would be Singlea. He planned a combined attack from land and sea, and the main assault force would be a recently arrived unit of Algerian pirates. On July 15, 1565, 23 days after the fall of Fort St. Elmo, the Algerians rushed the walls of Singlea as cannon blasted gaps in their ranks. Flame and shot racked the walls as the heavily armored knights struggled with the attackers. From the seas of Grand Harbor, the Algerians came rowing in on their ships, but they were stopped short by the underwater barricades. As Ottoman cannons roared and crashed into Singlea, the Algerians waded ashore, their long robes drawing water as they stormed onto the beaches and scaled the walls. At this moment, one of the Ottoman shells hit a powder magazine inside the fortress, blowing a huge breach in the wall, and the Algerians rushed in with swords to cut the defenders down. Lavalette, watching the attack from Birgu, sent reinforcements over the narrow waterway of Dockyard Creek, over a pontoon bridge that he had built for that purpose. The battle hung in the balance. At this moment, Mustafa Pasha played his ace card. When the battle was at its peak, he gave the signal. Several boats full of the elite Janissaries rode quietly past Singlea in a flanking maneuver to land in an undefended portion of the wall. They would have succeeded, and the Siege of Malta might have ended there, if not for a concealed battery of guns at the base of Fort St. Angelo, inside a cave. As the unsuspecting warriors rode into view, the knight's artillery suddenly roared and smashed them into pieces. A thousand Janissaries disappeared into the sea in a matter of minutes. The attack of July 15th ended with thousands more Ottoman dead, and still no victory, but the Christian defenders were badly shaken. The Maltese, I guess, took this in stride because they spent their time fishing Algerian bodies from the bay to rob them of their jewels and finery, because everyone loves a good corpse diamond. Or something. So by now, the Ottomans surrounded Birgu and Singlea with 65 heavy siege guns, and the bombardment was like the end of the world. It was probably the largest and longest sustained bombardment in human history to that point. 
As July passed into August, Lavalette and Mustafa both became more and more frustrated. They were both running out of time. Lavalette looked in vain for the relief expedition. While Mustafa was still getting angry message from Suleiman, like, why haven't you taken Malta yet? Hurry up. The Ottoman High Command had even more issues. Mustafa and Piale were not getting along. Piale had failed to sustain the blockade of Malta, which allowed Lavalette's messages to get through. And even, at one point, a small force of 700 Spanish soldiers slipped through the blockade and reinforced the garrison. Mustafa's frustration with Piale's inexperience and incompetence collided with Piale's resentment of the old man's arrogance. This was the point when they could have used Dragut to bring them together. But Dragut was dead. Mustafa decided to launch an all-out assault from every angle on Birgu and Singlea at once. Since they could no longer work together, he would lead the assault on Singlea and Piale would attack Birgu. This attack would be the climax of the Great Siege of Malta. On the morning of August 7th, 1565, the bombardment stopped. The defenders knew what this meant. Knights of the Order of St. John, soldiers of the Spanish King, and the people of Malta rushed to the top of the walls to prepare for the greatest attack of the siege. Wave after wave of Ottoman troops, Yayas, Spahis, and even the last regiments of Janissaries rushed the walls with unimaginable courage and determination. The simultaneous attack hit the garrison of Malta when it was already on its last legs, and the most desperate battle of the siege took place under the furious sun of the Mediterranean summer. Most of the men attacking Birgu zeroed in on what was called the Castilian Bastion, where a major breach in the walls had been formed both by the bombardment and Ottoman mining parties. The attackers managed to surmount the breach, get inside the walls, and plant their flags atop the rubble. Panic went up across the fortress. The Turk was within the walls. They had breached the walls. The battle was lost. But not according to Jean Parisot de la Valette. The 70-year-old Grandmaster grabbed his helmet and pike and ran to the front lines himself, shouting that this was the day to die. He led the knights, the soldiers, and the Maltese throughout the battle, firing a musket and shouting religious slogans until he was hit in the leg and finally persuaded to fall back. Everyone knew that if Malta lost its commander, the defense would fall apart. The scene was like something from a horror movie, with dust and smoke and dismembered bodies. Brave men fell on both sides, but the garrison retook the breach and held it. Piale watched in dismay as his attack faltered. Lavalette was not the only leader to show immense courage on August 7th. Mustafa Pasha, also in his 70s, led the Janissaries against the walls of Singlea on horseback. He was everywhere, encouraging and leading his men, exposing himself to the danger of combat. Gradually, the weight of Ottoman numbers and courage began to tell. They forced themselves over the walls and into the heart of the citadel. Lavalette's men in Birgu saw the Ottoman banners rising over the walls of Singlea, but they could not spare a single man to help. Mustafa's strategy had worked. The tide had turned. Ottoman victory was imminent. Then, suddenly, the Ottomans heard a signal to retreat. The order was passed on to fall back, and just at their moment of triumph, when all seemed lost for the Malta's garrison, the Turks began to give up the conquered ground. 
Just at the very moment when Singlea was about to fall at the very apex of the battle, the Ottomans had given up. Why? The bombardment and din of the battle had been heard as far away as Sicily, but it had also been heard in the Maltese city of Medina, where the Knights' cavalry was stationed. They guessed correctly that this bombardment meant that the final battle was here, and they rode out to distract the enemy. This cavalry, during the big fight, had charged down into the Ottoman rear areas at the very tipping point of the battle, burning the undefended camp, including Mustafa's hospital. It was the last charge of the Crusader Knights, and it had tipped the scale. The Ottomans had mistaken this little charge for the arrival of the relief expedition, and the panic had caused them to retreat at their moment of triumph. The greatest opportunity to take Malta had been lost. Mustafa Pasha was furious about the raid. This is what he said. By the bones of my fathers, I swear that when I take these citadels, I will spare no man. All shall I put to the sword. Only their grand master will I take alive. Him alone I will lead in chains to kneel at the feet of the Sultan. But first, Mustafa would deal with Medina, the place from where the cavalry strike had been launched against his hospital. He should have captured it at the beginning of the siege, and its continued existence had cost him dearly. Medina was expected to be poorly defended, but when Piale led his troops towards Medina, they were surprised to see a large number of defenders in the battlements, apparently eager and ready to fight. They unleashed fire on the Ottoman attackers, who were intimidated and withdrew. The defenders of Medina breathed a sigh of relief, because most of them were just peasant men and women wearing military uniforms to deceive their enemy. Medina was weakly defended, but the Ottoman withdrawal kept them from finding that out. No one realized it at the time, but the tide had turned. The Ottoman retreat from Medina was yet another blow to the soldiers' morale, and by the middle of August, despair was climbing in the ranks of the attackers. Mustafa and Piale continued to launch attack after attack, but their men were less and less willing to go forward. Thousands of men had died, and three months had been spent in the siege, but the infidels still survived in spite of everything. Dysentery and disease were spreading through the Ottoman camp. Their supplies were depleted, and every time they advanced, they walked past thousands of their dead. Their willpower was collapsing. The Ottoman war machine, the world's best nutcracker, had finally found a nut that it could not crack. The Ottoman commanders now faced a serious problem. If they did not withdraw within four weeks, by mid-September the Mediterranean weather would prevent them from leaving until the spring. This meant that they would have to winter on the island. Now Mustafa was all for this. He knew that no matter how bad his supplies were, Lavalette's supplies were definitely worse, and if he stayed over the winter, Malta was certain to fall. But Piale was worried about his fleet. There were no shipyards on Malta to repair his battered vessels, and there was nowhere on Malta where he could shelter from the wind and the storms of Mediterranean autumn. He told Mustafa that whether or not the army wanted to come, he was leaving in mid-September. So as September finally did roll around, relations between the two commanders had never been worse. Now, Lavalette didn't know any of this, of course. He just knew that his forts were falling apart, all his men were nearly dead on their feet, and his garrison was inches away from breaking. Even if the defenders noticed that the Ottomans were starting to lose heart, they were running out of time. Everything hinged on the arrival of the relief force. Over in Sicily, 
Don Garcia de Toledo had observed events on Malta with growing concern. He knew that Malta needed his help, but he also knew that sending over a small force that the Ottomans would just annihilate would be worse than sending no help at all. He had only managed to scrape together about 10,000 men in, by August, but these forces wouldn't be enough to stand up to Mustafa's army or Piale's navy in a fight. If the relief mission was destroyed, then Malta would definitely be doomed. Finally, on September 7th, 1565, Don Garcia took the chance and sent his troops past the Ottoman fleet to make landfall on the northern coast of Malta at Milieja Bay. Once again, the Ottoman Admiral Piale had allowed an entire Christian army to slip past his blockade due to his incompetence. But the relief had finally come after almost four months of siege, and now the Ottoman commanders faced a choice. They still outnumbered the Christians by two to one in total, even with the relief force, and they could have tried to fight off Don Garcia's relief army and still attack the garrison of Malta. But Ottoman morale was gone. They had been defeated in spirit long before the relief expedition arrived. Mustafa was not confident, leading this beaten army into battle against almost 10,000 fresh Spanish troops, and reluctantly gave the order to withdraw. Over the night of September 7th, the exhausted defenders of Malta listened with growing triumph to the sounds of an army in retreat. The Turks removed their guns, the troops marched out of their trenches, and the supplies were loaded back onto the boats. On the morning of September 8th, 1565, the knights, the soldiers, and the Maltese looked out over the walls to see the enemy's trenches empty. Not a single flag was to be seen or a single noise to be heard. Just a blasted landscape where their enemy had been only hours before. They had survived. There was one more act to play out. When Mustafa realized how small the relieving army was, he tried to persuade Piale to unload the troops and supplies that had already gotten on board, which resulted in a final bitter clash between the two men. Because Piale was like, dude, I'm leaving. Let's go. Let's get off this place. But Mustafa wanted to recover a little of the Sultan's honor. Ultimately, Mustafa in person led 9,000 men to fight the Spanish relief force. The final battle of the Malta campaign took place on September 11th. The Spanish attackers shattered Mustafa's demoralized army and forced him into a fighting retreat across the barren hills of Malta back to his ships. Once again, Mustafa was in the front lines, exhibiting enormous bravery and leadership for a man in his 70s. And when he made his escape, he was the last Ottoman soldier to leave Malta. He left behind anywhere from 25,000 to 35,000 dead Muslim soldiers on the island behind him. As the Ottoman fleet vanished to the east, the great siege of Malta had come to a close. The garrison of Malta was jubilant, ecstatic, praising God for their victory and deliverance from the hand of the Turk. After four months of assault, bombardment, deprivation, terror, and siege, they had been saved from what must have seemed like certain destruction. None were more elated than the people of Malta, who had been caught in the crossfire between the knights and the invaders, but gave everything they had to defend their little island. And they had suffered enormously. Their home had been ravaged. Birgu and Singlea were leveled. Their fields were destroyed. Thousands of bodies littered their country. Around a third of the population of Malta had perished in the Great Siege, and a third of the knights. But they had emerged from the smoke and the fire. 
John Parasot de Lavalette and his small garrison of religious fanatics and island militia had survived the full might of the early modern world superpower. After the celebration was over, he, his knights, and the people of Malta got to work rebuilding their shattered lives. In the aftermath of the Siege of Malta, Christian Europe publicly celebrated and praised the valor of the defenders in their defeat of the Turk, though, of course, they, they hadn't done much to help them when they were actually under siege. What was more useful than all these nice words was a sudden flood of patronage and support, which enabled La Valette and the Order to begin the rebuilding of Malta. The first project would be a new port city to replace the ruined Birgu in Singlea. Its site would be the tip of the dragon's tongue, the place that had once held the fort of St. Elmo, the great bastion of defense in the darkest hours of the siege. It was at this site that on March 28, 1566, La Valette laid the cornerstone of the new city, the city that would bear his name and stands today as the capital of Malta, Valletta. Suleiman forgave his subordinates, Mustafa and Piale, for their defeat at Malta, and contrary to their expectations, they kept their heads. But on September 6, 1566, a few months after La Valette laid the cornerstone of his city, the great Turk died while besieging the city of Zagetvar in Hungary. Suleiman the Magnificent was 71 years old and had ruled the Ottoman Empire for 44 years, one of history's greatest rulers, one of the greatest blemishes on his record of nearly unbroken success was the Great Siege of Malta, the nut that his war machine couldn't crack. On August 21st, 1568, less than two years later, Jean Parasot de Lavalette died from a stroke at age 73, three years after he had led the Knights of St. John to victory on Malta. He suffered the stroke after a day of hunting, so I guess people even hunted hard in the 16th century. The last of the great crusader knights lies today in St. John's Cathedral, atop the ruins of St. Elmo in Valletta. The war for the Mediterranean reached its climax in the naval battle of Lepanto in 1571, where an allied Christian fleet, including galleys of the Order of St. John, nearly destroyed the Ottoman navy. After this battle, the war for the Great Sea simmered down. The Ottomans would still expand their empire, they hadn't even reached the height of their power yet, but Malta was their westward limit. They would go no farther. The long march of Ottoman conquest had found at least one boundary it could not surpass. The knights would linger on in Malta, but the Great Siege had been their last hurrah. Over the next two centuries, they gradually faded away. In 1798, 233 years after the Great Siege, the knights were overcome by a conqueror even greater than Suleiman. The young French general, Napoleon Bonaparte, landed on Malta and evicted the order with almost not a shot fired, putting an end to 268 years of St. John's rule over the island. Within a couple of years, the British took Malta from the French, and they would hold it well into the 20th century. The Sovereign Military Order of Malta still carries on the tradition of the Knights of St. John to this day, but as a humanitarian and philanthropic organization rather than a war-fighting power. It was under British rule that Malta re-entered the eye of the storm. From 1940 to 1942, the people of this rocky little island 
would experience their second great siege, this time from air and sea, as the Axis powers tried to destroy the British-held island during the Second World War. The Maltese would prove as unconquerable in the 1940s as they had in the 1560s. Today, Malta is a prosperous little island nation, one of the world's smallest independent states, a lovely resort and tourist attraction. It has been almost completely rebuilt from both its epic sieges, but there are still plenty of reminders that this little island was the site of history's last crusade. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care, you say? Well, first of all, you should care because it's epic. What a story, right? I'll say it again. The Great Siege of Malta was one of the most extreme combat experiences I have ever heard of outside the world wars. I'm sure there were battles that were more intense for a few hours at a time, but this was such a long, sustained, desperate struggle. It lasted almost four months, and the pressure on both attacker and defender made it one of the most enduring and brutal experiences of its age. And in its own time, and for a few centuries after, Malta was legendary rightly regarded as one of history's epic clashes. But it's not quite so well known to modern history. Much more recent events have taken the spotlight and thrown Malta, the Siege of Malta into their shadow. One of the very things that fascinates me about the Great Siege of Malta was that it was a study in contrasts. The very anachronistic institution of the Knights of St. John, with the Maltese peasant militia, battling the thoroughly modern military of the Ottoman superpower. Now, both sides' weaponry was pretty much on a similar technological level, but the Ottomans could muster up overwhelming organizational strength, discipline, technical expertise that the knights couldn't begin to approach. The history of the Ottoman Empire in the 1500s is almost always a history of victories, with a few notable exceptions, the main one being Malta. It was the new versus the old, and the Ottoman Empire was the new. The knights were the odd one out. They were the old power. So why didn't the Ottomans take Malta? Well, they did some things wrong, and the defenders did some things right. The divided Ottoman command caused initial mistakes from which they never really recovered. Tackling St. Elmo before securing other targets caused the Ottomans time and resources they could not spare, and gave Lavalette time. Time was everything in Malta, and it worked against both sides, but in the end it worked against the Ottomans. Dragut might have won the siege, but his death marked the end of Ottoman command unity. On the side of the Christian defenders, the dominant figure is Jean Parasot de Lavalette, whose competence, force of will, and strength of character were critical in the darkest hours. It is honestly rare that one person is so critical to the outcome of a conflict, much less rare than you'd think. But in this case, Lavalette's leadership was utterly indispensable to the defense of Malta. But the commanders, as brave as they all were, did not do most of the fighting. The courage of everyone in the Siege of Malta is utterly astounding. Bravery was not exclusive to one side. It took enormous guts for those Janissaries to assault the walls against flamethrower-wielding knights, which sounds like a video game villain. And it took nerves of steel for the Maltese civilians to face off the Sultan's troops with knives and rocks. Everyone gave 110% at Malta, no holds barred. Like I've said, they went hard. It was just amazing. I've hinted at the reasons for this, in my opinion, throughout this episode. It was faith. Pure and simple. 
Religion was not the cause of the Siege of Malta. That was planned and carried out for strategic reasons for both sides. Religion does not cause this war. But religion, both Christianity and Islam, shaped and inspired and motivated the battle for Malta. Both the Knights of St. John and the Ottoman Caliphate were religious institutions, and their troops went to war with prayers on their lips and the blessings of their religious leaders. And in some cases, this was all that kept them going. For both Christians and Muslims in 1565, faith was a major component of their staying power, their will, their determination to see this thing through. I think it is clear that the Knights and the Maltese could not have survived the siege without their faith to keep them fighting in the darkest hour. And the Ottomans would never have fought for so long either without the dream of paradise before them. Whether that's a positive or negative, or neutral, is purely up to you. And ultimately, we're not so different. Faith and religion don't always play the large role in everyday life today that they once played in the 1500s, at least not for most people. But other ideas took their place. Patriotism, liberty, equality, nationalism, maybe communism and fascism. People in the 20th century would reach similar levels of extreme endurance and harsh combat for these new ideals, these new beliefs, these new dogmas that would launch their own version of holy wars. Maybe Malta wasn't the last crusade after all. But ironically, Suleiman's dream came true. Malta did serve as the stepping stone for an invasion of Europe. Instead of the Ottoman Turks, though, it would be the allies of World War II who would invade Sicily and then Italy, breaching Hitler's fortress Europe, with Malta as one of their main staging points. A totally different kind of crusader, Dwight D. Eisenhower, would coordinate the invasion of Sicily from tunnels beneath Valletta, once the site of Fort St. Elmo. The site of the Last Crusade would be the launch pad of the Great Crusade that would defeat Nazi Germany. Somehow... I imagine Jean de la Valette might have been proud. Thank you so much for listening to me today. I hope that you liked today's story, even if it made you never, ever want to travel back in time to the 16th century. Thank you also for your continued support and feedback as I get this podcast started. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about it. If you don't, tech, tell your enemies. If you want to read some of the stuff I've written or just check out a bunch of my ramblings, you can go to my website and leave a comment at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to support in other ways, you can find a donate button there as well. You can also find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I'm not perfect, so if you've got advice, I'd love to hear it. Also, pack your bags, because next week we're going to stay in the Mediterranean and even visit Malta again, because we're going to witness the birth of the United States Navy and Marine Corps as they fight the Barbary pirates and win their first victories on the shores of Tripoli. Join me next week on Unknown Soldiers.